welcome to another episode of Antidotes. I am Christine. Thank you guys for tuning into another week. This week is really cool because we have a guest from all the way across the world. We have Haley from Japan, although not from Japan, living in Japan. Welcome, Haley. Oh, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) We are recording this Friday night, Eastern Standard Time in D.C., and it is Saturday morning for you. It is. It's 9 (laughs) a.m. So I am a little exhausted from working, and you're a little exhausted from getting up. (laughs) Just, yeah, I've literally just woken up. (laughs) (laughs) It's working out, though. So thank you so much for coming on, and I guess people can probably surmise by your accent that you are not originally from Japan? Uh, Definitely not, no. (laughs) Where did you live before? I'm originally from uh, the UK. I actually diversified a little bit. So I was a nurse in the UK for nine years, spent five of that working in um, A&E or ER for the Americans listening. But while I was a nurse, I decided I wanted to kind of live in Japan and work here. Obviously, language barrier. I couldn't be a nurse, so I decided to diversify and I teach English now. But I do teach medical English as well, so I've kind of got the best of both worlds. That's so cool. We were talking when we were setting this whole thing up that you teach medical English for nursing students in Japan. Yes, I do. And their curriculum is a little bit different than what you would get in the UK and then what it sounds like we would get here in the States. Yeah, yeah. Um, So basically, they don't have a lot of clinical hours like anywhere near as much as we do in the UK and I assume in the US as well. Mm -hmm. Like in the UK, I mean, I did my training from 2003 to 2006 and we had like three, we called them placements in the UK. So three placements a year, wherever uh, community hospitals, et cetera. And they, in the first year, they would be six weeks each. The second year, I think they were eight weeks each. And in the final year, we had two um, 12-week placement no one eight week and two 12 week placements in the final year so there was a lot of like kind of patient contact hours but here they do like a couple of weeks here and there but they don't really do a lot with the patient so they don't like give medicine medication and provide that sort of nursing care for the patients they just basically obviously help them dress themselves wash themselves and provide that sort of care with them and occasionally I think they said like maybe in their final year they they sort of like follow a patient through but they'll they'll only really do like their vital signs like blood pressure temperature and things like that and I was just kind of like amazed (laughs) at how little contact hours they have but I think it it's kind of I don't know whether it's to do with like the kind of privacy and dignity kind of cultural norms over here as opposed to the ones that we have in the UK I'm not entirely sure why it's that different but yeah I was quite surprised because I was there saying obviously we get a lot of kind of practice to get us into when we're actually a nurse Um, whereas here they they don't really get that until they are actually a nurse so it's kind of they have to learn when they've actually qualified as a nurse so to speak. Well I feel like every nursing student that I know in the US comes out of nursing school going, oh my God, I don't have enough experience. I'm petrified yeah, of yeah, touching yeah. a patient. And yeah. we've done so many hours. Definitely. I mean, I had a degree beforehand and then I kind of did an accelerated program. So mine was a little bit different. But basically, I did kind of like the last two years of what a normal nursing program would be and yeah. kind of just smooshed down into like a year and a half. Every program is a little bit different. But like, 
the last two years is 12 weeks of a clinical where you do like eight to 12 hours a week. And then like the second semester, we did two clinicals for 12 weeks, both being either eight or 12 hours. And then they're all 12 week clinicals, but they can, you would do multiple clinicals and it would be anywhere from like 12 to maybe 24 or in the last one was a practicum, which I did like 32 hours yeah. for 12 weeks. Well, well, ours, like in the UK, the, the pace, placements, you're basically a member of staff wherever you're working. So you work the full-time hours. I think apart from the the second year, and the, you had like one day where you'd be in uni um, in, and you'd have classroom time. And then you'd work four days a week to make up those hours to like 37 and a half hours is our kind of full-time hours in the oh UK. that's much more yeah so oh, yeah, much yeah, more yeah. Than we do. <laughs> especially for like I mean for me I was 18 years old when I went into it so I didn't have a family I didn't have any responsibilities and I even I found it tough like working full-time having to obviously still do study still write essays and things like that and then try and earn some money on the side as well yeah so but there were a lot of like kind of people in the 20s 30s 40s who had children who had mortgages yeah. responsibilities and it's like how they managed I really don't they were amazing being able to kind of juggle life yeah I I don't know how people do it here where we have less clinical hours but even still oh my gosh that would be insane and do you think that the Jap I mean I don't know really how to word this pull it like <laughs> <laughs> do you feel like with the less clinical hours that the Japanese nurses are as prepared when they graduate? Do they make up for it more in didactic experience? Um, I mean, I've actually only been here since October last year. I'm just coming up for a year now of being here. Um, And obviously my only contact are with my nursing students. I've only, I've been to the hospital once while I've been here and it was an ER. Uh, my contact with the nurse, like, <laughs> it was kind of like my broken Japanese, their broken English, a little bit of Google Translate. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think everything's very classroom-based. It's very kind of, like, science and really in-depth into, like, anatomy and physiology and uh, pharmacology and things yeah. like that. I think way more than it we had in the UK, because obviously our kind of focus was the more practical hours. Mm-hmm. So I got hedging um from just what I've experienced so far maybe just like kind of a bit deer in the headlights uh, but I was like that anyway though and even with all my uh, right. my kind of practical experience I think any any new nurse is gonna be like that I'm not entirely sure what co- kind of like support network they have as soon as they get their first job um, I kind of haven't gone into that with my students yet and I kind of asked them what happens when they first get onto their their first job and what sort of support network they have, get them into doing all those different things they didn't do as a student. I would imagine if the entire culture and the entire education system is like that, then they would expect you to come out of school not having that yeah. experience yeah. and then be prepared to train you on the job. Yeah. So it would, I, they must make up for it in some way. It's just a very different Thing than what you know, different education yeah definitely I mean we 
<clears throat> there were some second years who went to uh, the Philippines for a week or two over the summer vacation. Um, basically, they were they were just going over to like see how um, the system works over there, like meet some of the nursing students in the Philippines um, and see their hospitals and stuff. And I met with some of them before they left, kind of going over because they had to do like some presentations and things about nursing in um, Japan. So I was helping them with that and just kind of proofreading their presentations and chatting to them about it. And I was kind of like preparing them a little bit of like how it's going to be really different I was like the student nurses over there do a lot more than you do Mm. like it's more kind of akin to what we do in the UK and the US for experience for student nurses and they were like really like oh wow they do that and I was (laughs) like oh it's amazing so I haven't actually seen them since (laughs) they've come back yet I will be I think in the next few weeks so it'll be it'd be interesting to hear their their thoughts on the uh, the experiences of what the uh, the Philippine student nurses do that's cool. We'll have to have you give us a little update <laughs> yeah. on what they thought about it. I have very unintentionally been finding out what nursing and healthcare has been like internationally since starting this podcast. Yeah. And it's been really cool. I just didn't, you don't realize all the differences that exist all around the world, but the fundamentals are basically the same because humans are the same. So every culture just is approaching it differently some better than others for people that listen to the uh, story about Africa but (laughs) you know for the most part humanity is the same so it's you know you get the job done and just some have more clinical hours than others and some have more classroom hours (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) but we were also talking about nurse practitioners in the UK and I have to correct myself a bit because (laughs) Eliza is an American who is working in the UK and she's working in London. So I think her experience is probably a bit different than yours. Yeah, London is like its own kind of microclimate compared to the rest of the UK. What applies to London may not necessarily apply to the rest of the UK. Sure, I'm, I would not apply things that are happening here in DC to the rest of the United States. That is <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely for sure, and probably for the best, <laughs> especially at this moment. <laughs> so you were saying that there are advanced practice nurses that exist, and they are prescribing and doing diagnostics and like working as yeah, GPs. Yeah, yeah. So basically, like. My my kind of experience um, when I worked in accident emergency, we had emergency nurse practitioners. We had quite a few of them who worked there. So yeah, they basically worked autonomously like a doctor would. And so obviously they had a scope of practice with, with certain patients that they could obviously see and certain ones they wouldn't see, but they could order x-rays, they could order tests and things and basically follow a patient through from start to finish and provide Uh, whatever treatment they needed so kind of like broken bones um, they could do stitching prescribed medication and different things so that was that's I think is a fantastic thing especially for the like accident emergency in the UK with kind of the NHS and the pressures and kind of it frees the doctors up to see the the sicker patients right and that's what we have been talking about with Eliza we're like NPs can do so much it's amazing that they don't exist in the UK where you have the NHS and you're trying to save costs and you're trying to get more people in. Yeah. We're like, it doesn't really make sense that you wouldn't have them, but you do. So I'm glad we're all on the same page. (laughs) Yeah. We have them in GP surgeries as well. So they'll have their own kind of patient load as well. If you, if you ring up and say, Oh, I really need an appointment today or something. And they'd be like, well, we haven't got a doctor's appointment, but we've got, you can see the nurse. And it was like, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll see the nurse. And like, for example, um, I went back to the UK um, over the, the summer vacation for a few weeks and my, my granddad got um, 
was poorly. So we rang up and he said, oh, we can come in and see the nurse. So she she saw him, listened to his chest, like took all his bile signs and everything, gave him a prescription from uh, a chest infection, so some antibiotics. So, um, And we also have like kind of, we call them like walk-in centres, but they're basically like clinics that are pretty much run by nurses um, and like advanced practitioners. Uh, you don't need an appointment or if you're not even registered with um, like a, a GP surgery or something, you can you can go there or you can't get into your GP surgery, you can go there and uh, and get treatment. Yeah, we have urgent cares here. That's what we call them. Yeah. Doc in a box is our kind of slang term for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Well, I will have to try and find a advanced practitioner NP in the UK to get on the podcast and chat about that. Yeah, that would be cool. It's cool. I am expecting to be very wrong on a lot of things. So <laughs> if anyone hears me say something, they're like, no, that's not how this works. Please let me know. I'm happy to be corrected and learn something new. But you are coming on not to correct me about nurse practitioners, which I'm very happy to have you. I am about to know. <laughs> but you have some pretty awesome stories that you wanted to share. I do. Which one do you want to start with first? Um, I'll start with the sad one. Okay. And then the more uplifting one, I think. Sure, let's bring him down and then we'll bring him right back up at the end. Yeah, I think that's the best way. All right. So, I mean, I may as well say where I worked because by telling this story, people can figure it out anyway. I worked in a, a small town called Blackpool in the UK, which is where I'm from in the northwest of England at the local hospital. And I worked there in 2010 in the uh, accident and emergency department. And um, there was a nurse who I'd actually come across previously as a student called Jane. And Jane was a fantastic nurse. She was so caring, kind hearted, and she was really patient and attentive with her her patients. And um, when I started, she wasn't actually working at the time because um, she'd been on maternity leave um, for a while. And she returned back to work in June 2010 and started working part-time night shifts uh, just for two nights a week. Um, so we didn't kind of cross paths very often, usually only when I was on night shifts. But whenever I worked with her, she was always like, seemed kind of full of life and she always said hello and stuff. Yeah. But tragically, in uh, July of 2010, um, she was actually murdered outside the hospital Oh God! by her ex-partner. So his name was Jonathan Vass, or is Jonathan Vass. Is he the father of the child that she was on maternity leave for? He is, yeah. Um, So they kind of, he was an ambulance technician. Um, So he wasn't a paramedic. He didn't have, like, he didn't have that sort of training. He was kind of a junior on the ambulances. So we called them ambulance technicians. So obviously they came across each other and met each other in uh, in the department and kind of got friendly. And they started a, a relationship in 2007. He was actually a married um, father of two, but he'd said to Jane that he and his wife had separated and, um, and they began a relationship together. But actually, he was still with his wife. Oh, God. And every time he kind of went back to his home and to his children, he would make up like fictitious uh, night shifts and, and other things to kind of lead this double life. And uh, apparently he actually had a third woman oh um, as well that he was seeing at the same time. Um, so everything kind of started off great, but um, Jane's kind of friends and family didn't really take to him. They just felt like something was off about him. 
And in 2008, they actually moved in together, but um, kind of everything went down south and he started to become violent towards her. Did they move in while he was still married? I I am not entirely sure about that. I assume so. Um, I'm not sure if or when she ever found out about his him lying to her about his wife. Yeah. So he, yeah, he became quite violent to her, but she decided, she loved him and she decided to stay. And then early 2009, she found out she was um, pregnant with his child and the violence uh, escalated. So there were sexual assaults as well, which Mm. obviously I don't want to go into too much detail because it's it's not very nice. But um, multiple times when she was pregnant and also after she'd had the baby as well. So she eventually thought that's it and she plucked up the courage and she was like I'm no I'm done I'm leaving so she went back to her parents house she was quite scared of him but he was like messaging her saying oh I'm nothing without you please take me back I'll get help and obviously you've got a newborn baby you kind of want to have a family yeah so she decided right I'm gonna go back and and just see how it goes um but it it wasn't good and it only lasted a few days where the again violence um sexual assault and she was like right i'm done finally so she left him and reported him to the police um for the violence and the rape so he was actually questioned in november 2009 and he was um charged with with the attacks and remanded in custody he was actually denied bail twice and police had said to Jane and her family, like, there's no, he can appeal again, but there's, there's no way he'll be granted bail. Unfortunately, a judge decided differently against oh my God. the protests of Jane, her family, the police, and the Crown Prosecution Service that we have in the UK. And he was granted bail in December 2009. Um, but his bail conditions were that he wasn't to have any contact with Jane, his daughter, or her family. Like, that'll help. Yeah, oh. pretty much. I'm getting so mad listening to this. Yeah, he's, there's, um, just to kind of put a pin in it, there has been quite a few documentaries and stuff about this in the UK. And also there was a documentary after he was sent to uh, prison. It was based on one of the, the prisons in the UK and they were filming and stuff and he actually featured on it and I just looked at his face and I was just like, I I hate you. Yeah. And just the way he came across, it was just like, you, you have no remorse at all. Anyway. Let's unpin this. <laughs> so because obviously he'd been granted bail and stuff and she was scared of him, she she obviously stayed at her parents' house. She moved out of her own home and stayed there. She was absolutely petrified, scared to leave because she thought that he would get her. And she kept um, a diary and, and some extracts have obviously been released of this like, diary. I think it was maybe admitted into evidence as well in his trial. So one thing she wrote, like, a jury won't him guilty. He'll, he'll get revenge on me. Mm. And like, what's his plan? What's he going to do? <laughs> get his revenge on me. Yeah. Don't think he'll go to trial without hurting me. I don't think we've seen the last of him. And there was another entry. I've been worrying about what he might do to get me, even killing me. What would stop him? So it's obviously that Jane was absolutely petrified of this, so scared of what he might do. And she it's clear that she really knew him. Yeah, of course. Uh, and by his true colours. So in 2000, April 2010, he pleaded not guilty to all of the charges. And his trial date was set for October of that year. Um, he was kind of so arrogant he thought that she wouldn't go through with it like there's no way it's going to go to trial she won't testify against me she loves me but in the may she uh, jane actually gave a full statement to um 
at the Crown Prosecution Service and the police, and that was going to be like the foundation um, of his trial. So apparently when his defence team informed him that the trial would go ahead, he, he wasn't happy about that, and he kind of thought, like, I need to do something about this. While this was going on, he'd actually had to move back to his parents' house because his wife had kicked him out. So I assume they were kind of still together, even though he had a child with somebody else. Was he violent towards the wife at all? Do we know? Um, not that I know of. It, that hasn't ever been reported in uh, in anything kind of publicly, so I'm not entirely sure. Okay. So Jane was still at her parents' house, didn't want to leave. Um, she'd never go out alone. But eventually, after some time had passed, she kind of got her confidence back a bit, and she decided that she'd go back to work because she absolutely loved her job. So she went back to work in late June, um, but she still didn't completely feel at ease. So she'd um, park in the staff car park, but somebody would always come and meet her from the car and walk her back to her car. So she like started rebuilding her life, um, even though the trial was coming up. And she had like a lot of her friends also worked with her as well. They were all such a really um, close friends. We had kind of a really good, like tight knit family in the department. She decided that she um, no longer needed someone to walk her from her car, so she, she'd stopped that. But she didn't know that Vass had actually been stalking her, like on Facebook mm. and actually in person. He'd been following her, so he knew exactly when she worked, and when someone what time she arrived, what time, yeah, and what time she left. So eventually, Sunday, 25th of July, 2010, he arrived at the hospital around 7.45, um, parked his car and had his um, bike in the the back of the car and he actually cycled to the hospital to wait for her. Um, About 8.16, Jane arrived and she's actually seen on security footage walking towards... 8.16 in the morning? uh, Sorry, in the evening. She was doing night shift. Okay. Um, I think it worked out better for for childcare so her parents could Mm -hmm. look after her daughter in the evenings. So yeah, she's seen walking towards the hospital but kind of halfway she turns back but you can't see if she's seen him or whether she's just forgotten something in the car. We're, we're not entirely sure why she turned back. But it's when oh, she got God. back to her car that he confronted her. Um, and he demanded um, that he, he dropped the charges against her. <clears throat> but obviously she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he um, stabbed her quite an, uh, a number of times, walked away and then decided that wasn't enough. And he came back and finished the job unfortunately and then he got on his bike and cycled back to his and left i mean obviously luckily it was outside the hospital and it was just before the night shift was like happening so there was pe- lots of people there there were lots of witnesses yeah and um it, like everyone obviously went straight to jane they took her into the um the a and e department obviously where she was just about to start working but he'd the attack was that brutal that nobody actually knew who she was. Um, oh and so, I know, it's absolutely heartbreaking. It was only when they actually found her ID in her bag that they like they found out actually what truly horrible situation this was. Um, I can't imagine that moment of finding, yeah. of that realization, yeah. that, that horror for that stuff. Yeah, I know. I mean, I wasn't actually on shift that evening. I was, um, I had, I think, a rare weekend off and uh, I was in work the next morning. But I have a friend who actually lives opposite the hospital and he just messaged me on Facebook and said, oh, something really big's going on at work. And I was like... Oh, I wonder what. So I kind of like messaged a couple of like my colleagues and stuff saying, oh, what's going on? And they were like, oh, I don't know. I'll find out. 
So, like, eventually we found out, like, um, somebody's been attacked outside and we're like, oh, God, no, no, that's not good. Um, and then your mind starts wondering and, like, like who was it? Was it a patient? Like, did we do something wrong or right. things like that? And um, and then eventually it came out that it was a member of staff and you kind of, like, another level then you're like, oh, no, not a member of staff. And then you find out it's somebody that you knew and you worked with and it's just absolutely devastating yeah yeah so Jane didn't actually live in Blackpool I think she lived um maybe around an hour away um that's where she was from but um Vast disappeared but they police sent somebody to stand outside the house because they were scared that he was obviously going to go and try and get his daughter and get her family Mm -hmm. and it was 7 a.m on the Monday morning he was actually arrested outside their house with petrol cams in his car so oh yeah not good what he was obviously thinking of planning but absolutely fantastic that the police were there and like they were on their game and they arrested him straight away how many hours after the attack was this um less than 12 hours so yeah jane arrived around like 8 15 to the hospital and this was i think about 7 a.m the next day okay yeah it's quick well i mean yeah yeah so Yeah, definitely. So he was actually convicted um, of Jane's murder on the 7th of October 2010. He was given a minimum life sentence of 30 years before being eligible for parole. But um, there was a bit of a devastating blow to Jane's family and to her memory because the judge who convicted him actually decided to drop the rape charges and leave them on file because apparently, obviously, they, they considered murder to be more serious than rape but if he ever gets released from prison he actually won't be a registered sex offender oh and then he won't have all the conditions that the charge of being a sex offender entails so there was there was a lot of Uh, uproar in the uk uh, about that definitely you get off lighter murdered somebody almost yeah yeah so something completely horrible and tragic happened but there's actually been some good that's come from it jane's parents have actually done amazing amazing work to try and change um the law to do with um bail so in may 2012 they actually succeeded with um getting jane's law passed which allows the prosecution to challenge a judge's decision to um grant bail to somebody oh hell yeah yeah i know they it took a while but well didn't take that long, actually, considering how long some laws take to go through. Yeah, but, seriously. Yeah, a couple, couple of years, and they managed to do that. They've also been involved in a campaign for a stalker's register in the UK, uh, more protection for domestic abuse uh, abuser victims, which is actually still currently kind of campaigning for. Um, and also in the northwest of England, where Jane was from, there's actually a new shelter, which was opened last year for victims of domestic abuse, and it was named Jane's Place Aww. in her memory. So, um, as I said, I wasn't actually working that evening, um, but when I, I worked the next day, it was kind of, it was a really surreal experience, and, like, we all kind of felt like it was just a nightmare we couldn't wake up from. We were crying, there was disbelief, there were questions, but what really stands out from, like, that particular shift and the, the whole week in general was that the, the hospital and the department kind of came together. The hospital right, rallied around the department and uh, made sure that we had enough staff, like people could take breaks whenever they needed to. And the patients were also absolutely amazing. Like Blackpool isn't like a big city or anything like that. It's kind of like a medium-sized town, but like 
everybody in Blackpool had obviously knew what happened. So the patients were like really kind and they were really patient. Um, they never complained like about waiting times or anything. And um, it, kind of, it also seemed like the patients were all there for like genuine accident and emergency reasons rather than just the everyday stuff that you usually get where you're like, just right. go and see your GP, please. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they, they were all kind of there. They, they They needed to be there. And it was, yeah, it was a very, very surreal kind of traumatic, obviously, experience. Did the hospital provide you guys like mental health support afterwards yeah yeah we we had I think one of the days during that week I think maybe the Wednesday we had like a more memorial service for her in um in the chapel and then there were people on hand for uh people to talk about and obviously the the guys who were working that night um and also a lot of them were her close friends as well were also given time like time off and and support as well for to kind of uh regroup and and grieve yeah that's good you need you need to just Take whatever time you need to process something that is that horrific. It's like a family member. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for obviously, I I hadn't worked there for that long. I hadn't really worked with Jane um, for very often because we had different shift plans and stuff. But yeah, th- th- it was a family, and Jane had worked there for a while, and there were a lot of people who'd worked there for for years and years. So yeah, it really it really is a family. Is there a charity for her? Uh- for the shelter that her parents set up or is there a website or something that if the, someone's in the UK they can help with that petition petition yeah there is um a website um to do with the stalkers um register that they're trying to get passed through um I'm not I can't remember the name right now but I will definitely pass the information on to you and you can uh, maybe put it on the Facebook page yeah I'll put it in the episode notes in the Facebook page absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. great that would be awesome. Well, it's so horrific that the, the law failed her and domestic violence is it's heartbreaking. But yeah. it's amazing that her parents have taken this tragedy and and said, "Nope, we're going to we're going to make the world a better place." Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously these horrible things happen, but you you do see kind of time and time again that that the people who are are left grieving and like with the devastation of these things of basically right, yeah, I'm not going to stand for this. I'm going to I'm going to change something. Um and I know it's happened in the US quite a few times with different yeah. like laws that you've passed like to do with um, child abduction and and things like that like the the parents have kind of come through and gone no let's let's make this world better let's make sure this doesn't happen again. Yeah. And when you work in a profession like medicine you see so much tragedy it's nice to see the I wouldn't say good come out of it but it's it's nice to see that you know there can be a little bit of sense yeah. in something. Yeah, something yeah. positive does come yeah. out of it. So that's my sad story. That's the sad one. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's hear the uplifting one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So this is kind of around the same sort of time, and Blackpool's kind of demographics. We we have a lot of problems with uh, alcoholism and uh, drug addiction. So we we have uh, a lot of people who obviously attend the the A and E department with those those issues but one particular patient like kind of stands out he's a middle-aged guy came in like intoxicated and kind of a little bit aggressive um he wasn't under arrest or anything but we kind of had security around Mm -hmm. um him because of just he was being a bit aggressive towards the staff when we were trying to do things for him like take his blood pressure and that doctor had been seeing it been see him and like prescribed some stuff 
couple of nurses have been in, tried to like say, like, ask him if they could do these things for him, like take this medicine and stuff. And he was just, he just wasn't having any of it. He was like, nah, I'm not having this. And he was kicking off with them. And um, so I was like, oh, let me, let me go. I'll have a go. So I, I went in and he was kind of, he was shouting. He wasn't happy. He was angry, but he was kind of mainly shouting at the security guards, like um, swearing at them and stuff. So I said to them, I was like, look, just, stand outside for a minute and I, I closed the curtain uh, I turned around and said to him I was like what what's all this about I said we're just trying to help you and he was like he kind of calmed down a bit then he was like I know I know and I was like what's the problem so he started talking to me a little bit and uh, he kind of opened up and I said look so we're just trying to help you do you mind taking these for me like these tablets I think it was lithium or something and I said they'll make you feel better and he was like all right then and then he just kind of said to me, he was like, I've not always been like this. Mm. So I just stopped and just listened to him. I didn't say anything. And I just let him talk. And he was like, he said, I, I had a good job. I had a marriage. I had a house. Like, my life was good. He said, but a couple of years ago, my mum my died suddenly. So and obviously, like, I was devastated. And it devastated my dad. He says, and then I lost my dad about a month later. He said, and my life just kind of spiraled out of control and I, I didn't know what to do. And literally I was stood there. And I couldn't say anything. I was just, my heart was breaking for him. He started crying. And, and I, I just said, I know life doesn't always go the way we expect it to. And I was like, but we're just trying to help you. So let, just let us. And he was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the end, he just said, look, thanks for listening to me. Yeah. And I said, what I'm here for there's no problem he's like yeah but not a lot of but people just judge you he said they see you they think you're an alcoholic they think you're like you're worthless and stuff he said but thank you and I was and that really touched me and it kind of it was one of like sort of not to be cliche a defining moments yeah. in kind of like my nursing career of like you always know it's like you need to listen to the patients they're not always what you think you are and like from the outside they've all got like sometimes there's reasons of, of why their life is like this but it was like it was one of those things where yeah sometimes things just don't go the way you think they're gonna go and your life just kind of spirals out of control and you just need a little bit of a helping hand to kind of get yourself out of that and yeah we ended up having a really nice chat and like it was it was fine after that security left and like he was great. <laughs> he was a really, really lovely guy. And uh, so yeah, that's something I kind of uh, took away from me on that shift. And it's always stuck with me, even like eight years later. Um, I still think about that man. Yeah, it's so true. You can do, you can know all of this medicine, you can know all these drug dosings, you can know all the fancy labs and everything. But if you can't sit and listen and look at the person, the numbers don't mean anything. Yeah. And there's been multiple times in my career that the biggest impact that I've had on a patient has not been doing my NP stuff. It hasn't been prescribing a medication. Yeah, I mean, sure, yeah. that's been helpful for people. But sometimes it's just listening and saying, I believe you and letting them talk and people will just start crying in my office. And I'm like, I have a lot of tissues. People cry all the time. It's fine. <laughs> you can cry here. No big deal. And we've done a couple of episodes where we talked about patient violence and people attacking me. And that's yeah. the, not the norm. Very much the norm is 
people come into my practice and they just want to pour their hearts out. And that's the rewarding part about being a nurse and getting to sit there and say, I'm so sorry you're in pain, but I'm with you. And even if I can't help you right now, I just want to listen and I'm going to help you through it. And I'll kind of, you know, see what we can do. And we're just going to take it one step at a time and not judge people for it. That's, yeah, definitely. That can be the best medicine. Yeah. I mean, it's like, especially, I'm not sure about like kind of about ratios and stuff in the US, but in the UK, I uh, before I worked in A&E, I, I did um surgical ward. <laughs> but like our patient ratio was um, maybe like sometimes I'd have eight patients to me and like a healthcare assistant. Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. So obviously it's like, some patients just just want to talk to somebody but unfortunately the way nursing is sometimes at the moment especially in the UK with it being short staffed and like underfunded and things it, right you just don't always have that time and i remember a lot of the time when i worked there i was like i, I would just feel so guilty at the end of my shift it's just like i know that patient all they wanted to do was just have a chat to me they're lonely like maybe they don't right. have any family who are coming in but I just don't have the time. It's like, I've got eight patients. I need to do this. I need to do that. And sometimes I'd either stay after my shift just to sit in the office and catch up on all my notes. So yeah, it's, it is, it's great when we can just sit down and listen to the patients and like, it's very rewarding and I know they appreciate it, but then there's the other side of it where you just feel so much guilt when you you just don't have that time and you have to say, I'm really sorry. Like, yeah. um, most of the time, if I was doing like blood pressure or different things or like changing a dressing, we'd have a chat then. Right. And that, that kind of helped, but yeah, the, just the guilt that I, that I felt was horrendous sometimes. Yeah. Cause you, you like, I know there's an amazing story here and there's an amazing person and I feel so bad that you don't have that companionship and I want to just connect with you as a human, but I, I don't have time. There's so many other people that need me. And that's one thing that I love about nursing students is that there's so many of them. Patients really like nursing students because they get dedicated in the U S one nursing student for the shift goes in and they're assigned a patient and that patient, especially if they're elderly, they get that nursing student the entire day. They can chat their yeah. ear off that they learn everything about them. Patients love that. They're just they get a dedicated caregiver who will ask them more questions than anyone ever could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and especially like at the VA or something, oh my god, you can learn the most amazing stories from patients just by sitting yeah. there and talking to them like, yeah definitely like some of the older like the older patients yeah some of the stories that they have are just fantastic I remember one time I was on the ambulance and this guy called for high blood pressure and it was it was wicked high it was like oh god 200 over 110 or oh, something wow. yeah so we're taking him to the hospital and everything but you know I was like let's just let's let's talk let's not worry about it and he was a World War II vet, and he would fly around with General MacArthur all over the place. He was like a navigator mm-hmm. or something, and he was telling me all these World War II stories. And he wow. knew um, Paul Tibbetts, the guy, the pilot of the Enola Gay, who uh, dropped the bomb in Japan. I guess probably not a good story to put <laughs> at the moment. Mm. <laughs> Too soon, maybe. Um, <laughs> as you know, someone that just loves history, it's like, oh my god, I get to talk about this, and the guy talking about war, <laughs> and but having mm-hmm. someone that appreciated these stories, his blood pressure dropped. I mean, I didn't even give him any. Oh wow! We were a BLS ambulance, 
but I mean, he still had some hypertension, <laughs> but it dropped significantly <laughs> yeah. because he we started laughing and we started chatting. And, yeah, he was relaxed. And he relaxed yeah. and he was, he had a good time and it was a great story that he told me. So that was a really early on in my career. And I learned from that, you know, just oh, ask people about funny. themselves, just chat. <laughs> yeah. Now I have a podcast where I ask people about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> it's like therapy. Tell me about yourself. <laughs> I am a strong believer in storytelling as therapy. I think it's really yeah. beneficial just to get to get it out. And I want to hear hear what you have to say because everyone's got some – everyone has something to add to the world. And when I worked in addiction, the same it was the same thing. You know, they're marginalized people. Ask them about their story. You want to be inspired? Yeah. Go ask someone that's recovering from addiction about their story. It's incredible. And I'm going to be doing some episodes on addiction and we'll get into those then. But it's eye-opening, I'll, I'll say. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, thank you for spending your Saturday morning talking to me <laughs> about your no problem emotional stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a roller coaster. <laughs> but they were good. They were They were great. I would love to get the links for um, the Stalker's Law. Yes, I will pass those over. If you have any websites for domestic violence in the UK that I could post as like a resource, I would love to do that too. Yeah, there's um, there's quite a few charities um, and things in the UK to do with things like that. So yeah, I'll definitely pass them on for uh, our UK listeners. Yeah, there's not very many of them, but maybe, <laughs> maybe now there will be. So I'll post those for the US listeners and the UK listeners. And I'd love to share those. So thank you. And for everyone else, thank you again for listening. If you have any stories that you would like to share, give us a shout out on social media. Our Facebook is Antidotes Podcast. There's a Facebook group where we'll be doing some discussions. And our email is antidotespodcast at gmail.com. My Instagram is antidotespodcast. And then Twitter is antidotespod. So thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes. Please review us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. We will see you next week. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. This was awesome. 